Hello everyone and welcome to episode 24 of UFO Encounters Worldwide. This is your host Jesse Peake, MUFON Field Investigator in the state of Pennsylvania, city of Philadelphia. Well, we have a really good episode for you today. We have author and longtime Roswell investigator Don Schmidt. Now we had his colleague on Tom Carey a few weeks ago and we got his side of what he thought of the UFO phenomenon and Roswell in itself and today we'll have Don on and we'll be talking about his start into the UFO field, um, how he was investigating when he went to Roswell and some of the books that he's recently written. So um, this is going to be a great episode full of tons of information so strap on them seatbelts we're going for a ride. All right, and welcome to episode 24 of UFO Encounters Worldwide. And we have our special guest today, Don Schmidt. Don, welcome to the show. My pleasure to be here with you today, Jesse. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you for coming on. Um, I remember when I first got involved in this field, um, your name, uh, they had the Fab Five in basketball, and uh, you yourself, um, Tom, Stanton, Kevin, and Bill were the Fab Five in the UFO field. Um, and <laughs> So um, that's who I grew up with, you guys. And uh, some of the first books that I've read um, was The Roswell Incident by Bill Moore. And then I got to witness to Roswell that you and Tom wrote. Um, so that's how I got introduced to this field, which is the, probably the best way I could think that it could possibly happen. So, <laughs> Well, and not that the five of us have always gotten along right. well. Uh, I probably knew both Bill Moore and Stan longer than anyone else. Uh, of the five and um at the same time that stan was having the falling out with bill i was in the middle of all that and um it, it became personal unfortunately but uh it was still with a, a respect for the research and the material that was provided and then right after that i linked up with with kevin and then shortly thereafter with tom and um I was uh, very close with, with Stan right up to the end. And in, in, in fact, um, he numerous times commented to me that uh, we made a great team. And he had more than once even suggested that we would write a book together. And in fact, our book, our update book on the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Yes, the one I have right in front of me. <laughs> all the wreckage and the bodies, the remains were sent to after the recovery operation in Roswell. Uh, it was the very last thing that Stan wrote and that uh, he wrote the foreword for that book. And as you see, Jesse, we dedicated the book to Stan. Yes. And um, yes. he passed away just, uh, just before it came out. Yep. Uh, that's one of the reasons I got it. I went to the Philadelphia MUFON conference this year and Tom was there. I got his autograph and some pictures with him. And um, that's how I first got to meet Tom and then got him to come on the show two weeks ago. Um, and then I seen that Stan wrote the, the forward to it. So I was like, oh, my God, it's a must have, especially after he just had just passed away. So it's it's nice to have that. You know what I mean? And writing and have that book dedicated. So that's amazing. And I, and I knew how ill he was. I, I knew that his days were we're winding down and um, most didn't realize that it was more than just his heart. And uh, it was all the more reason that when I, I asked him to write the, the foreword 
it it uh, it uh, had all the more meaning in realizing that it was most likely the last thing he would do. And as it turns out, it was. Well, that's amazing. I'm happy to have that 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 last bit of work that he did. You know, it's an honor to have that. And I'm glad that you got you actually went ahead and did that because without you doing that, we wouldn't have that today. So we have you to thank for that. Thank you. No problem. Um, so I, I wanted to, I guess, start at the beginning um, of how you first got involved in the UFO field um, and started taking these trips to Roswell. Well, I have been a, um, a special investigator for uh, who will rename the foremost authority on a subject, and that being the late Dr. Jalen Heineck. Yes. And uh, the fact that not only was he my mentor, my teacher, my scientific director, he was also a dear friend. I find that I often will pause in the course of an investigation or working with a witness, and I will, th I will ask, what would Alan say? What would Alan do? That type of thing. And uh, for having worked with him the last eight years of his life, and then after his passing, I uh, became the director of special investigations at what, what we had renamed after he had founded the Center for UFO Studies in Chicago. And in his honor, we renamed it the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies. And I served on the board of directors there for 10 years. And the one case that we wanted to go after was Roswell. We were so convinced that we would make a single weekend jaunt down to you know, the land of enchantment, New Mexico, yep. prove that this was nothing more than a weather balloon device as the government still maintains after almost 75 years. Yep. And we were wrong. In fact, we couldn't get back to New Mexico fast enough. And at that time, that would be Kevin Randall and myself, because as we were interviewing first-hand witnesses who had actually handled the debris, the wreckage, the, uh, the remnants from the crash, we realized that they were talking about something extraordinary. They were talking about something well beyond our technology. And uh, why would we argue the issue with the chance that we were potentially be you know, working on one of the biggest stories of all time. And so we reversed attitude, we reversed our approach in that we were gonna allow the evidence take us, take us exactly where it, where it would lead, no matter what. And uh, you know, trusting our own investigative prowess and uh, we had the oversight as far as the uh, Roswell uh, group, as far as at QFOS in Chicago that over would oversee our activities. We would report to them on a monthly basis as what was going on. And then the amazing thing is by that fall, we were already were having our first archeological dig at the crash site. Wow, okay. And uh, we mapped out, uh, and we had already had a number of first 10 witnesses who had taken us to the exact location including the very ranch foreman's son, the very ranch foreman, W.W. Mac Brazel, yes. discovered that a uh, huge amount of debris that covered an area of almost a mile long, I mean, just a tremendous amount of wreckage. And uh, to have his son drive Kevin and myself out to the very location. And 
for anyone who's ever been to an actual battlefield, it's like if you, you've been to the Alamo, for example, right. it's almost like you can sense a hundred ghosts. Okay. You take it in. It, it, it's overwhelming at times, and especially when one considers what may have transpired on the very ground you're standing. Right. So both Kevin and I, there are even pictures of us running across this open uh, arroyo, this open high desert uh, as far as uh, ranch land, as though we're little children, we're, we're little boys, elated at the, at the prospect that, my God, what if it all did happen here? Right. Just as the eyewitnesses uh, have, have defined. And um, in being there in that September, and as I said, we mapped out the site, we used a survey meter, we laid out a systematic grid, we mapped areas and flagged areas for a, a potential entrapment. And um, we made, as far as all the initial preparation to come back, as far as to conduct a full archeological project, which wouldn't happen for another 13 years because it took, that long to raise the funding, to get the sponsorship, to get the appropriate permits as far as through the Bureau of Land Management because uh, they happen to own that very parcel of land. And then we had always uh, envisioned a university project. And we were working with the contract archeology span department at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. Okay. And it was Professor Dick Chapman. And if we could provide you know, the means as far as their budget has had been proposed to us, they would then actually, you know, conduct the, the project, conduct the dig. And it all came together in 2002. And then we did another one in 2006. We did another one in 2013. And the last one we did was in 2016. Wow. But the biggest was the 2002. And that was with uh, even a backhoe, and we had uh, a helicopter. We had a full team that spent four uh, uh, full days excavating the site. And um, very excited that we confirmed specifically a gouge. Witnesses had described that something had actually impacted, that one of the largest as it turns out, it was the largest piece of debris that had impacted and created a few hundred foot long furrow, a trench, right, uh, a few inches deep, about ten foot wide, and long filled in with uh, you know through the wind and rain erosion. But numerous witnesses had described it at a specific location, and we had flagged that in the very direction as they had described. So then the very last day of the dig, when it was an archaeological backhoe operator, he went by the code name Alley Cat. <laughs> he even worked in Egypt near the Sphinx. Wow. He has the touch and he works with an archaeologist on the ground as an engineer, as a field tech. And so he's making notes and he's filming everything as it transpires. And they both noted. Alley Cat, as well as his tech, that the shovel, as they were digging, as we had advised, perpendicular, cross-digging to the mapping, the flagging of the furrow site. 
and the shovel was jumping as though it was hitting a pocket of loose sediment. And then as it went down and it pulled all that to the side, there it was, a symmetrical V right below the surface, exactly where the eyewitnesses described it. So in other words, we had proven, we had demonstrated an impact wow. that something had actually, as far as star, left its uh, impression on, uh, as far as the upper pinnacle of that debris field. And no weather balloon device would do that. Um, this um, was quite a breakthrough on our part. Since then, we have uh, found fragments of metal that uh, have been tested, analyzed in numerous labs. They contain uh, the alloys involved. They're mostly aluminum, but they also contain molybdenum which is a hardening agent, not for aluminum, but rather for steel. Uh, there is not a registered uh, mixture of the two here on planet Earth. And yet there it is, aluminum and molybdenum, because it would make the aluminum, it would tend to make the aluminum as brittle as glass. But yet there it is. And it's as much as 3%, which may not sound like a lot, but when it comes to a hardening agent, it, um, you know, it's like if you add a hardening agent even to a, uh, like a paint or certain other uh, elements, you only need to add what is sufficient enough to create the effect desired. Right. So the fact that there is 3% molybdenum in this aluminum, these aluminum fragments, as it turns out, is substantial. It is quite a lot. So, and again, it shouldn't be there. Now, again, it doesn't prove that it's extraterrestrial by any means, but we cannot, and the, uh, the geologists and the, the lab, the metallurgists who have been involved, they cannot pin it to any registered alloy here on planet Earth. So remains a mystery, and that's fine. That's what this is all about, you know, chasing down this mystery, an investigation that remains very fluid. And that's the excitement of the chase, the adventure. The fact that here we are now over 30 years after we started. And we're just as excited about this as ever. We truly are. Yeah, I mean, this is, that's absolutely mind-blowing. I didn't have that information. This is the first time I'm hearing this from you, so this is great. Um, I didn't know you guys found that much material when you actually went out there and did the digs like that. Um, well, and, and in fact, the last dig, Jesse, we, um, I had our resident geologist determined a final depository site, the runoff where all the, because with the monsoons that come through uh, Southwest right. at that time of year. And I witnessed it once again, this last year, six inches of rain, you know, within a matter of hours and the way everything washes off. And so the thought being, okay, there has to be a point it may be miles away, but nonetheless, where the runoff from the debris field deposits all that, you know, all those, uh, that topsoil, right. all possible remnants that even may date back to 1947. And there was an area where the sediment is over 10 inches deep. And wow. we focused on that site for the better part of two full days. 
And we came up empty handed, meaning that if there were any fragments, whether it was even like nails or wire or, or anything magnetic, we now have to retrace and move closer back to the debris field. We've, we've gone too far. But that again, that again is what archeological work involves. Uh, there's no such thing as finding the very treasure you know, the very first time out. Absolutely. <laughs> and so um, we, are, we would uh, like to go back. Uh, they have increased the restrictions on the site. And in fact, the BLM after now of, of 32 years of working out there, all of a sudden now they're all concerned about us being there. Oh man. And um, it's like, are they, is, is someone getting afraid that we're getting closer <laughs> right. to that very treasure, so to speak? Uh, I don't, I, I'm not into uh, conspiracy in that regard, but uh, it's the government, so I'm not surprised. Yeah, they're putting a lot more restrictions on a lot of different things now. It's a lot harder to do the investigations that were that were normally done back in the day, a lot more easier. Um, so we're, I guess you guys have all these materials somewhere, right? Um, did you guys donate them to a, a university or do you guys have them in holding somewhere? Well, because I'll give you an example. Um, the metallurgy department at the University of Arizona, Ames Labs, had made an offer that if we could overnight a piece that they would uh, give it their immediate attention. They would analyze it the very day they received it. And uh, again, our, our resident geologist in Roswell, Professor Frank Kimbler, made the mistake of uh, FedExing a fragment overnight when it's, we, it has always been our policy, it doesn't leave our site. If, it's, if there's any chance it's the genuine article, Nothing is done without our being present. Right. And because it was a unique offer, they were willing to do it pro bono, provided it was overnighted, they would end major lab. So he took a chance. And it arrived as scheduled the next morning by 10 a.m. It sat on a, on a table in the lab for a couple of hours before the head of the department, I don't have her name uh, in front of me, and I did not deal with her directly, whereas Professor Kimler had. But anyway, she calls him after opening the FedEx box, where's the sample? Oh. What are you talking about? Well, I opened up the box, I opened up the inside box, I opened up the jewelry box inside. No remnant. You gotta be no kidding. Fragment, nothing. And um, the, the, the good thing was that Professor Kimler even had his wife witness his packing the box right. and, and they filmed it. So there was absolutely no question that it was placed in that jewelry, uh, the jewelry box, and then it was put into a, another box, and then wrapped, and then stapled, and then placed into the FedEx box. So someone obviously was very concerned 
that it indeed may be the real thing. Right. So we have to ask ourselves, well, what is the real thing? Is it a weather balloon? Is it a mobile weather balloon device that they would still be so concerned about after, at that time, it was 70 years? Or is there a there there? Right. And it keeps pointing to the fact that, you know, as much as I, <laughs> I, I, I kind of lectured Professor Kimler that I hope you learned your lesson because we're playing hardball with the big boys. Absolutely. Just, just can't take these things for granted. And, but let's also remain all the more self-confident that I'd be more concerned if nobody was paying attention. Right. Now you know that they're paying attention that you're on to something. Exactly. And we could spend hours, Jesse, just doing a show about all the times that they have clearly demonstrated that not only are they monitoring, not only are they watching, but they have gone out of their way. They have, uh, they have uh, stolen items. They have tried to discredit us. They have damaged, they have vandalized uh, as far as private property, trying to incriminate us. And uh, maybe we could do that show at some point down the road. But it keeps showing that we're over the target. And you're not going to be fired at unless you're on, you're at the target. And so uh, I wear it as a badge of honor. Bring it on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, I mean, if you if you stop doing the work, then that means they succeeded in stopping you and then they win. So and, and as much as they would like to claim that they've won the war, then why do they continue to engage us? Exactly. They can't leave us alone. The other day, again, some idiot. And I know who he is, but. He, he just throws out this, this, you know, this charge that Kevin Randall and I were interviewing dead people and claiming that we actually interviewed them. Oh, my God. Yeah, I seen something about that. Ugh. I mean, absolutely ridiculous. We have everything on audio. We have everything on video. Now, are you claiming we're, you know, claiming to be, uh, you know, uh, as far as uh, some type of uh, voyagers who are able to speak with the dead? They throw these platitudes out, you know, with the thought maybe something will stick. Maybe right. something will get these guys to finally. What can it? What does it take to provoke them to finally engage us? And it's like, well, you're not worth the time of day, and as a result, you provide nothing as far as of any interest, of any knowledge that anybody, you know, would need. So basically, crawl back under your rock because that's where you belong. Right. Wow. I can't believe that. It's absolutely crazy that they're still to this day. I mean, but it just proves the fact that you're, you're really get, you're onto something and everything you've been doing and working towards is all worth it. You know, I could not agree more. And uh, they obviously, they, they too, they realize they have far from won the war. Absolutely. So, yeah, I, I think it's, that's why I think it's great that more younger people are starting to get involved in this too, because they're going to continue it. You know what I mean? I guess people say the young guns, you know, and uh, we're going to be the ones that continue the fight. And um, I hope that more people are just like you and, and everybody else that are continuing to do this and push for this because uh, it needs to be done. Um, absolutely. Well, you the young people coming in and I can't emphasize enough. There were periods that we would look at the situation. We would go, What's it going to take to draw more people in to the field? What's it going to take to especially bring more women into uh, the, the yeah. subject matter? Yep. And the one thing I can't emphasize enough is not only do your homework, but study the history. 
Yes. You see right now, when uh, the Pentagon released the, the report on UAPs and, you know, the eight page of nothing, eight pages of nothing. Yes. But where they only acknowledge the phenomenon from 2007 to the present. Right. They like to have the world believe that nothing happened before 2007. That if it's finally a threat from this, from that year on, that it wasn't a threat back in the 90s, the 80s, the 70s. How about back in the 40s already when this all actually started? Yeah. So they disavow all that, and it's going to take not only uh, the press to go, wait a minute, what about Roswell? What about the 1950s as far as the, the overflights as far as over Washington, D.C.? What about all the abduction accounts? What about all the landings and yeah. many of the best cases of all time and in other countries yeah. that all happened before 2000 and 2007? Yep. And that's where the young ufologists are going to have to step to the fore and go, yes, we've, we've looked at the history and we know that the richness of the phenomena exists over the last 74 going on 75 years. Absolutely. And especially the fact that it necessitated the Air Force actually getting involved with Project Sign, Project Grudge, and Project Blue Book. Right. And so there was uh, an actual, you know, an official investigation that went on. And so I think they, they like to play off of the naivety of the press, of the public, and as long as they get away with it, they do. And that's where we have to keep holding their feet to the fire. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Uh, and, and, it's, and, and people such as yourself and a program such as this that uh, will help support that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I have a website that I do for this, too, as well. And I try to put as much as the, the big history from back in that time onto the website. So when younger people do read it, they kind of understand our history and they 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 get the, the main points and, and they can put it together and, and really give good information when they're giving information out to other people. Um, that had their facts straight and not just giving out some disinformation to other people. Um, I think that's most important when we give information out to not be giving disinformation out and making sure the, the proper information is given to them. Um, so that's definitely an, an important part. And it's just yesterday when they had the press conference at the Washington Press Club. Yes. Uh, as far as on the uh, the the, uh, the nuclear facility overflights and, and, and Captain Robert Salas, who's a, a good dear friend, and I applaud him. I, I compliment him as as far as on his efforts and never giving up on what I consider, especially Malmstrom yes. Air Force Base mm -hmm. in 1966. The idea that an entire firing line of Atlas missiles were shut down by a UFO. Yep. I mean, I'm sorry. There's nothing else that caused that. Thirty of them. I mean, I mean, <laughs> I mean there it is. And, and the point being, that's 1966. Yep. So it's just a mere 19 years after Roswell. But nonetheless, the Pentagon would again suggest that nothing happened before 2007. They were just, <laughs> you know, disabling our nuclear missiles. But uh, again, nothing to see here. Right. Please. Uh, members of the press, do your due diligence, do your homework. It's all there. I can't tell you, Jesse, how often I had reporters go, oh, my God, I never realized how big this story was until I actually looked at it. Well, 
We can't spoon feed it. Right. I mean, it's all there. All you have to do is be courageous enough to peek, you know, behind the curtain. Absolutely. All right. Well, I want to take our break real quick while we're on this roll, and then we can hit it back off in the second half. Um, so we'll don't go too far. We'll be right back and uh, hold on to your seats. <laughs> Hey everyone, this is your host, Jesse Peake from UFO Encounters Worldwide. I'm here today to let everybody know about a new project that I started to help research the UFO phenomenon. It's called Project Bat Tech 404. It stands for Battery Technology, and 404 is an error code that you usually get with, tech, with technology or a cell phone, GPS, or any kind of tablet that you hold in your hand. So it's Project Bat Tech 404, and what we're investigating is electrical malfunctions associated with UFO sightings or encounters. You can report your sighting or encounter at battech404researchmembers at gmail.com today, and one of our team members will get in contact with you and investigate your case. You can also go and check out our website today, which is Project battech404.wordpress.com Again, that's projectbattech404.wordpress.com You can go on there and see all of our goals of the entire project, what we plan to achieve, and all of our trained team members that are included in this research project. Again, it's Project Bat Tech 404, and we are researching electrical malfunctions associated with UFO sightings or encounters. Check out the website today. Hey, did you know UFO Encounters Worldwide has an official website for the podcast? That's right. You can go to ufoencountersworldwide.wordpress.com today and check out all of the cool content we have on the UFO phenomenon. You can get all of the content and information for each episode on the website. Plus, you can follow my travels and see some of my work. There's even new weekly updates on the UFO phenomenon with megalithic structures and different places from around the world with UFO sightings. That's UFO Encounters worldwide.wordpress.com check it out today ufo encounters worldwide wants to hear from you have an experience or a sighting you want to share contact your host jesse peak at ufo encounters worldwide at gmail.com today Hey everyone, it's Jesse Peake, your host from UFO Encounters Worldwide. Have you guys ever had a UFO sighting? Go to MUFON.com where you can report your UFO sighting and a field investigator will get in contact with you and investigate your sighting absolutely free. I'm a field investigator from MUFON in Pennsylvania. I do it all the time. It's a great, great organization to report your sighting and actually get real feedback. Check it out at MUFON.com today. Welcome back to the second half of episode 24 with our special guest, Don Schmidt. 
Uh, we went over some pretty deep information in the first half about Roswell and the material that he's found. Um, also dealing with the government throughout this entire time and how rough it can be. Um, but no matter what, we still have to persist and continue moving forward um, and get the facts out there. Um, so um, we talked about, I guess, um, let's see, uh, going down to Roswell and investigating with the people down there. And you said it was like a euphoric feeling when you got to the crash site, um, you know, because it's just like being somewhere where something might have happened or, or did happen, you know. Um, what was it like talking to the people that were involved um, with the with the whole process, the people that have witnessed the material or or had talked to people about it? Um, what was it like talking to them? Well, as I had mentioned, being a, a skeptic, both Kevin and I were skeptics. And you had mentioned uh, William L. Moore. Yes. Roswell incident with uh, the late Charles Berlitz. Yes. And neither Kevin or I, now mind you, this was nine years after the book had been published. And neither one of us had ever read it because we were that skeptical on the idea that you could contain and keep secret something of that magnitude. You know, the, the government being in possession of an actual crash saucer. Right. And uh, we had to quickly come up with speed after and it wasn't before but it was after we got back from that first trip that it's like we we better read that book because there are a lot of names in there there are a lot of things we need to follow up on there are a lot of yeah. uh, directions that we need to consider because that was in february and we were going back already in april wow okay so we it, it, it was and it was speaking to the first hand witnesses describing the actual wreckage the material that, whether it was the civilians like Brazel, his son, Bill Jr., Bill's wife, Shirley, there were hired hands. There were people within the Roswell community who had trekked out to the site after learning and hearing the rumors of the crash, and then certainly the military. Yeah. And then following the military leads all the way to Wright Patterson in Dayton, Ohio where the wreckage was set for testing and analysis. So you're getting it from different vantage points. And yet each and every witness is describing the exact same wreckage, the exact same characteristics, whether it was Major Jesse Marcel, the head of intelligence, whether it was Master Sergeant Lewis Ricketts, who was with counterintelligence, whether it was Robert Shirky, Lieutenant First Lieutenant Robert Shirky, who was with the operations at the Roswell Army Airfield, Robert Smith, who was one of the sergeants when they were loading up the crates of wreckage that went into a C-54 for to be flown up to Los Alamos via uh, Kirtland Army Airfield. Yes, the descriptions were identical. Yep, and the that speaks for something. The, the weightless, uh, paper thin, metal like material it was it always intrigued me jesse that they think they, they couldn't even call it metal they didn't know what it was they would say metal like yeah plastic like because it was so light but yet it was nearly indestructible you couldn't cut it you couldn't burn it even a bullet wouldn't penetrate it and you know engineers at the base described to us that they had a larger section about four foot in diameter and they took a 16 pound sledgehammer and i always joke with an audience 
you know, next time you're at a Home Depot, you're at a hardware store, <laughs> pick up a 16 pound hammer. You know, it, it goes through your car like tissue paper. Right. And yet these engineers describe how with a larger section about four foot in diameter on the ground, and they pounded on it over and over again, and not even a scratch. That's amazing. So it impressed them. It impressed them. And then the I-beam sections of the same material with the never-decoded symbology that ran the length of each piece. And then you had the silken strands of material like microfilament fishing line. And witness after witness describing how you could hold a light source or hold a lighter or hold a match up to one end and the light would emit out the opposing end. Well, what are they describing in 1947? Well, they're describing fiber optics. Yet fiber optics weren't developed until around 1970. Right. And then the material, at, at Tom and I, Tom Carey, we still refer to it as our holy grail because it's what we're still searching for with all the archeological work. Right. It's the same nearly indestructible material, but this you could fold, you could crease, you could crumble into a ball. And each and every time you would place it down. And I don't care if it was Bill Brazel, I don't care if it was wife Shirley, I don't care if it was uh, Jesse Marcel, I don't care if it was Louis Rick, I don't care if it was Robert Smith, I don't care if it was uh, uh, Sally Tetralini. I don't care if it was uh, LD Sparks, on and on and on. The more people I would think of, I could give you more and more witnesses. But it would slowly unfold. It would slowly unravel right before your eyes as it would, it would flow like water and smooth right out and assume its original shape and size. So in other words, it possessed perfect memory. Right. Which we do not even have by today's standards. No, not at all. I mean, it's right before your eyes. And so it's listening to those witnesses. I, I mean, describing those identical features and realizing, my God, it doesn't matter if it's a nine-year-old Jesse Marcel Jr. And it doesn't matter if it's a two-star major general who was at right, or even at the Pentagon at that time. And they're all describing the exact same characteristics. So they're either all reading from the same script or they all experience the exact same thing. Right. Something so profound that you don't have to elaborate. You don't have to sensationalize. You don't have to exaggerate. It is exact. I mean, it's, 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 it's big enough that I'm telling you exactly what it did, how it performed, how impressed I was based on, you know, the fact that I held it right in my own hands. You know, we've interviewed to date over 600 witnesses wow. directly or indirectly involved with what happened back in 1947. And, you know, they're just about all gone now. Tom and I and Stan, Stan Friedman would also, you know, use the same phrase that we were racing with The Undertaker. Yeah. And, and sadly, with the World War II generation, just about what? It's over. Yeah. But fortunately, you know, we tracked down as many of these people as we could. And at a time 
when you just didn't put a name on the internet and it would come up with an address or a contact, you know, that type of thing, Facebook, uh, Twitter, you know, account, what have you. We had actually, you know, track these people down. We had to find these people. Yep. The old white phone time, books, right? <laughs> right. And I, I, I can't tell you, though, how frustrating at times that we would finally locate somebody and we would speak to the widow and, he, and she would inform us that they passed away just a year before. Oh. And on a couple of occasions, it was just mere months. And on one occasion, we're speaking with the wife as she has just returned from the funeral. Oh, my God. And it, there's, it, nothing hits you so hard as the finality of death. You know, it's the greatest arbiter of covering this all up. The thought that whatever information these people possessed, it's gone forever. Gone forever. And we, we, just, we just missed it. We just missed it. And it's, again, something that these scoffers, these debunkers have no idea. I mean, if you want to accuse us of talking to dead people, you know, come and say it to my face, because not only are you full of it, you're totally making it up. You're totally fabricating as far as a, a, a noble effort that you wouldn't even know where to start with. That's right. As a result, I mean, you people on the sidelines, it's one thing for you to, you know, wish you were in the game. But when all you can do is throw bottles and cans at us as we're out in the field, doing what you wouldn't have the wherewithal or the knowledge to even get started. I'm, I'm sorry. You know, it's basically, you know, shut up. Right. I agree. I completely agree. And they have no right to be doing that. And no. they're, they're just trying to get something to throw out there that will stick and they're hoping it will. And they're just trying, trying to cause to, drama for no reason. Trying to be relevant, trying to stay as far as, you know, in the game. That's right. And as far as we're concerned, you're still out in the parking lot. We never even invited you in the stadium. That's right. Damn right. <laughs> really. Um, so I I, uh, I was talking with Philip Mantle recently because uh, you yes. guys published a book with him, Touched by Roswell, Crash yes. Encounters of the Rich and Famous. Um, so you guys are still to this day basically still in interviewing people and finding new people that were touched by this in some way. Well, but in this case, though, it's not a research book. It's it's. Uh, a, a much more lighthearted book in that we realized that we were so fortunate and that we got to meet so many celebrities, so many people in the entertainment field and, and politicians and high-ranking officials in the military and musicians, you know, recording artists, on and on and on, who either were born in Roswell, had gone to school in Roswell, had come and visited our museum at Roswell, had been involved with the Roswell movie or all the Roswell documentaries. And we finally decided, well, let, let's sit down and, and write a book about all these people and how it affected them. How, like, like, like Tommy Brookshire, who uh, famous running back with the Philadelphia Eagles. Yes. So no, you're no stranger to, to Brookshire. <laughs> Not at <Yeah>. all. <laughs> For where you live. And that he would go on to become a very famous uh, CBS broadcaster with Pat Summerall doing uh, the, the football games, yep. NFL football games on Sunday afternoons. 
And little did we know that Tommy Brookshire went to high school. He was in high school in Roswell at the time of the incident. Wow, ain't that something? <laughs> and he was listening to his friends talk about the welding shop south of town that had a piece of this strange metal that was like nothing anybody had ever seen before. And the rumors of the crash saucer were still percolating throughout the area. And, and Tommy, you know, kept, you know, pounding them as well, I'd like to see this. You know, why, why can't you guys take me over there? And uh, I'd like to see this myself. Well, they finally, you know, took him over and it was a, a welding shop by the name of Tyner. And it happened to be just down the road from the entrance of the front gate of the Roswell Army Airfield. <laughs> and some of the, the enlisted men, and as I had described, the nearly indestructible uh, qualities of the material, the wreckage, that they were slipping pieces out. They were sneaking pieces out and taking it to Tyner's welding shop with the hope that maybe he might have some success with an acetylene torch, you know, with a welding arc. Right. You know, something might have some effect on this strange metal-like material. So Tommy joins his friends. They walk in through the shop. And one of the boys, you know, uh, show our friend Tommy, you know, that piece of metal you showed us. And Tyner is acting like, you know, I'm busy, I have better things to do. And he's kind of trying to brush them off. You know, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, he realizes that they're not leaving until he finally, you know, puts on the show. And Brookshire, Brookshire describes how he goes to a workbench and he pulls out a drawer and he pulls out this piece of, again, what looked like metal, thin, paper thin metal, about the size of the palm of your hand. And he turns and he holds it out in front of Tommy. I keep calling him Tommy because that's what they call little Tommy Brookshire. <laughs> and he goes, take a look at this. And he opens his hand and he crumbles it. And then when he releases his grip, it unravels in his hand and then he turns his hand and then drops it. And Brookshire, Brookshire describes how for a moment, it just hung there. It was just suspended in midair before it then, as it continues to unravel, slowly floats down to the floor of the shop. Wow. Now this is Tom, Tommy Brookshire. You know, as far as Philadelphia, as far as Hall of Fame, Philadelphia Eagle football player, CBS, uh, as far as sports broadcaster. So he has nothing to gain by right. going with this. Right. And, and then we have like Dr. Edgar Mitchell, Apollo 14. Yes. MIT, PhD. He wrote the foreword to our book, Witness to Roswell. He had attended high school just south of Roswell back yes. in 1947. Yeah. <laughs> so he knew a lot of the people who were involved. And after the whole weather balloon nonsense, 
took hold, he, you know, persisted in trying to get them to talk. And they wouldn't. As he described, as others described to us, that prior to the incident, there was a wonderful rapport between the, the base personnel, the soldiers, the officers, and the Roswatones people. Okay. They, they shared a lot of activities. They, they shopped at the same stores. They went to the same restaurants. Many of the Roswell officers at that time lived off the base. They lived right in the community. So everybody so, knew everybody. So, they, yeah, that's right. They knew one another. And as not, not only the uh, astronaut Mitchell, but then others described to us that immediately after the incident, there was a total atmosphere of, of pure distrust. That it was as though everybody was watching one another. Everybody was informing on one another as they were instructed by the military and by the sheriff and his deputies. Anybody says anything about this, anybody claims to know anything about it, anybody claims that they have, are in possession of anything. You're immediately to contact the authorities, immediately let us know, that type of thing. So everybody's looking over their shoulder, everybody's whispering, and so it was sad. And here's Mitchell describing that everyone clammed up. He couldn't get anybody to talk about this again. Till decades later, he's graduated from MIT. He's in training for the astronaut program at Wright-Patterson in Dayton, Ohio. He would be uh, working out of an office at the Pentagon at times. And that's when he was starting to, with his more elevated rank, and especially as a future, you know, Apollo astronaut, right. he, he pulled some strings. He recontacted a lot of these men, now retired, and he said, I want the answers. I want to know what really happened back in 47. And he described to me personally a number of times, right to my face, how often the first words that would come out of their mouth were, they told me they would kill me if I ever talked about this again. Or they told me I would spend the rest of my life in Leavenworth State Prison if I uttered one word of, uh, uh, you know, of the truth about Roswell in 1947. Right. And, and Mitchell wouldn't you know quit until he got an answer and you know invariably each and every one told him it was true it did happen it was a craft of unknown origin there were non-human bodies recovered but that uh, to that point nobody was able to find the on button figure out you know how it ran how it flew what you know what caused it to crash no one had any answers and so they were just as much in the dark as any of us looking from the outside. Right. So Touched by the Roswell book gets into the personalities. As I just mentioned, Edgar Mitchell. As I just mentioned, Tommy Brookshire. Right. Uh, actress Demi Moore was born and uh, lived there till she finished high school. That's amazing. <laughs> Uh, songwriter, musician John Denver was born at the Roswell Army Airfield in 1945. Wow. And uh, stories as far as involving actor William Shatner and John DeLancey and uh, uh, Gordon McRae and Sheely, uh, uh, Sheila McRae and uh, Senator, the late Senator 
uh, Mike Gravel and Congressman um, uh, Merrill Cook. Yes. Okay. And Presidents Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter. Yes, Jimmy Carter. And so the whole book are, are just these stories of how these people were touched, how they became involved, and what effect, what impact it had on them. And I can honestly state for having co-authored the book with Tom Carey that it did have a profound effect on each and every one of them. And that continues to, you know, spell the level of uh, just importance. Right. How a mere trip to that museum that we have right. in Roswell. The impact, it, how much of an impact this had on people and how far it went. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And a museum that is now approaching over 5 million people in attendance. Wow. All over the world. That's so amazing. Don't tell me that Roswell is passe. Don't tell me that Roswell has um, you know, run its course and that there's nothing new breaking. Uh, just within the last couple of weeks, uh, Albert Einstein and his uh, assistant and her testimony about his, you know, being shown things from the Roswell incident. Right. So because we persist, because we continue to connect the dots, we realize that it, it truly was as big as we have now from being total skeptics to now when I'm asked, Don, do you believe, do you believe that Roswell happened? And I always answer, Jesse, well, no, I don't believe. I don't believe. But I'm 99% convinced. Okay. Big difference. Yeah. Big difference. Okay. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody has a belief in one thing or another. When you can stand and look at somebody and say, I'm... You know, I'm almost 100% convinced that this is genuine, that this did happen as described by all the uh, eyewitnesses. And as we have had judges, we've had attorneys described to us, we could take this, if these witnesses would still all be alive. Oh my we God, take, yeah. We could take this into any court of law and win hands down yeah. because we have over 600. The government has zero. They have absolutely zero witnesses to their alternative explanations. Yeah, that's absolutely crazy. I totally agree with that. I mean, it would be amazing if that would be able to happen today. And uh, it would definitely pass in any court of law, that's for sure, like you said. Um, well, it's been talk uh, for, for some years now that they, would, that they should do a, a dramatization. They should actually do a, a courtroom program yeah right <laughs> court and uh i think because it would be uh high drama and uh, it would involve uh you know good acting that uh, television isn't looking at that anymore it's uh it's um it's it's become more and more like video games right. and that's not what uh we want it would ever desire this to become right right i understand that um, we have about two and a half minutes, three minutes left, um, and I wanted to get your opinion on, um, I guess it's a more uh, up to date as of what's going on right now. Um, where do you think that we should really be headed towards, uh, you know, looking at for towards disclosure or what do you think we should be uh, getting together to accomplish 
Any any particular things? Excellent, excellent question. I'm glad you did ask it. I, I wouldn't have brought it up otherwise, but there needs to be a push now for congressional hearings, which will be a first. We've There's always been talk about, you know, let's have hearings on UFOs, and it never got off the ground. No. But the fact that you have the U.S. Navy that is at least on the surface trying to demonstrate some level of transparency and is uh, releasing their own personnel to testify on such experiences. Congress needs to actually provide immunity for all these whistleblowers, whether it's Air Force, Army, Air, uh, Navy, uh, Marine Corps, uh, on and on and on, law enforcement, whatever witnesses, wow. commercial pilots, all these people that have been handcuffed, yeah. that have been silenced, uh, with gag orders, with the uh, you know the inability to actually testify uh, under oath, I think there would be hundreds of people that if they would be provided the opportunity, just imagine live you know just a live televised congressional hearings on some of the most fantastic cases involving military pilots and commercial pilots and SAC-based officers and uh, as far as nuclear shutdowns, yeah. as, far as, <laughs> as far as that they can actually testify without fear of reprisal, a loss of pension and benefits, that type of thing, right. to grant a congressional immunity. That's what the UFO community, that's what the public in general has to continue to push for, because anything short of that will never be disclosure. Um, to say that it's not going to happen in my lifetime, Jesse, I would hope it would happen in yours, but we were hoping for even disclosure with a small d. We didn't even get that. Right. Right. So it's now up to Congress to do the not only professional thing, but take charge. Yeah. As, as demonstrated over the last 75 years, the very arbiters of the cover-up should be the last ones that we rely on for full disclosure. As far as I'm concerned, if the Air Force would step forward and tell me anything about UFOs, I'd go the other way. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. 75 years of deception. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I've, I've been telling a lot of people, talk to your congressmen, senators, get in touch with them, push for the hearings. Um, I've already gotten in contact with a couple of my senators. We're, we're talking now. Um, so I think it's, it's definitely a good thing. Um, there's, we, the, uh, good community on Twitter and stuff. We put together, um, you know, sheets to send out to your senators and congressmen to get answers. Um, and I'm, I'm so happy that I got a response actually two, three days ago now, uh, finally. So it's, it's, it it's definitely work. works good. and, good. uh, people are paying attention. Um, so that's great. Um. But we have and especially what it involves their constituents because uh, they're also lobbying for your vote. Right, right. Uh, Absolutely. Um, so we have about a minute left. Um, do you want to tell everybody where they can get your books at and where they can follow you at for your work? Well, our uh, presently our website is down. It was taken down with no explanation. And as interesting is that every time I deal with them, specifically Google, they can't give us an answer. And so uh, I would provide that, but uh, it, won't, it won't matter at the moment. But uh, our books are certainly available. 
at uh, Barnes and Noble, any fine book uh, store, and and certainly at, at Amazon. And then we have the International UFO Museum and Research Center in Roswell, open 363 days out of the year from nine in the morning till five o'clock at night. And next year is the 75th anniversary. So uh, we are actually going to start as of January 1st. We're going to make it a full year commemoration of the incident. And then uh, over the 4th of July weekend is the annual festival. So it will be a three-day full conference wow. involving speakers as far as uh, mostly related to Roswell, but it will be just nonstop uh, Roswell in the commemoration of what I now am 99% convinced is the biggest story of the millennium. Well, that's great. That's absolutely amazing. Um, and I want to thank you for coming on today, Don. Uh, it really was an honor to hear from you today and have this conversation and, and get this out to the people that need to hear it. So Thanks. thank you for coming on, Don. I really do appreciate it. Good luck, Good luck with the show, and uh, we'll do it again sometime. Just stay in touch with me. Thank you. Absolutely. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening today. This is another episode of UFO Encounters Worldwide with your host, Jesse Peake. Uh, we'll definitely be back next week with our next guest, Dr. Irina Scott, with her new book, The Pasagola Case. Um, so we're looking forward to that. And I hope everybody has a great week. Have a good one. And keep your eyes in the sky. Wow, that was absolutely an amazing episode today. Uh, Don definitely gave us some great information about the Roswell incident and uh, all the information about how he went down there and investigated. Uh, found the different materials that he did, doing the digging, um, getting out there, boots on the ground and investigating, talking to the people that were there firsthand. Um, just some great information and a little bit of inspiration at the end there as to how we need to move forward together. Um, to get this disclosure push with congressional hearings. Um, it's definitely something we have to do. I've already reached out to my state reps and senators and congressmen. Already got my first response a couple days ago, so you guys can do it too. It only takes an email or a message or showing up at the office and asking some questions. Um, so I highly recommend you guys go out there and do that. Um, also, if you haven't heard, Project Bat Tech is now taking uh, reports for electrical malfunctions associated with UFO sightings. You can report that at their email, which is battech404researchmembers at gmail.com, or you can go check out their website, projectbattech404.wordpress.com. So I hope you've enjoyed the episode for today, and we will see you next week with our special guest, Dr. Irina Scott, and her new book about the Pastagola case. Have a great weekend, everybody, and keep your eyes in the sky.